It's Wednesday, November 10th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me, Mr. Asit Sharma. Thanks for being here. Chris, thank you for having me as always. We've got we've got one of the biggest IPOs of the year on deck, and we will get to that, but we're going to start with some earnings. And for this first one, earnings is in air quotes. The loss that DoorDash posted in the third quarter was larger than expected, but shares are up 12% this morning after DoorDash announced it is buying international delivery platform Wolt for just over $8 billion in stock. I guess this is what? This is a growth company. We like our growth companies to grow, and so we don't care about the loss. We we like we collectively, the investing community, are applauding DoorDash for using some of their stock to go out and get bigger on a platform that's operating in, I believe, 23 countries. Yes, we are counting on DoorDash to prove out the proposition that achieving scale is going to lead to profits eventually. I actually sort of like this acquisition, Chris, because it is in Europe, so the cities are denser. They have a much more amenable system to delivering not just food, but all kinds of consumables, um, more so than we do in this big, wide open, spread across land that we call the United States of America. Um, those dense footprints lend them a little bit better uh, to high efficiency models. In other words, if you've got a driver who's out, he or she is probably going to be occupied most of the, the day w- within a city. Um, I think utilization rates in Europe have proven out that that model might be able to work <laughs> with some scale. We still don't know, but I like this. Something else I saw earlier this year was that DoorDash took an interest in a company called Flink, which operates in Germany. And this is a very interesting service. You essentially can order one or two items from a, a list from a, a local grocery store, and those are delivered to your door within 15 minutes, almost without fail, for a very nominal fee. Now, you and I wonder how in the world can something like that ever make money? But apparently, because of the configurations of cities in Europe, it, it's possible. And let's be honest, DoorDash and the other food aggregators need to get to this model where they're delivering more than just food to make the models work. But like you, Chris, you know, I look at this and, and I think this is not a business I'm quite interested in investing in today because there's an opportunity cost. There's so many great companies that scale in, in, in other industries with a clear path to profitability with better margins. Um, just really briefly today, uh, decent report. Revenue was up 45% year over year to 1.3 billion. They did see a bigger net loss, more than double versus this period last year. So they lost $101 million in the quarter versus only losing $43 million in Q3 of 2020 when they had a lot more uh, orders that were associated with COVID pull through. So anyway, I I will stop here and get your thoughts uh, on both DoorDash as a business model and this tie up with Walt. You know, the kidding aside that I did at the top of the show, this does seem like a smart acquisition. Uh, like you, I look at this and I think, okay, expanding in, in Europe, like this makes sense to me. With the move in the stock, DoorDash is closing in on the size of Uber. And just like you, 
DoorDash is not on my watch list. I'm, you know, I, uh, there are better ideas out there for me personally, but I am more bullish on what DoorDash is doing as a business than I am Uber and Lyft. I feel like the, the delivery of food and stuff has a brighter future, or I should say a more lucrative future for investors, as far as I can tell, than the delivery of people. Yeah, I think the management of Uber might agree with you, Chris. Not on <laughs> the viability of the investments, but the idea that uh, getting past delivery of people and going to delivery of items is maybe uh, a, a good business model to invest in. Of course, Uber has poured so much money into Uber Eats, and that actually is, in many quarters, a faster-growing business. As we talked about on this show with any kind of delivery service, when we were discussing Lyft, you've got to have utilization of drivers, and you're always trying to recruit more drivers for that platform. I think the business model on the food delivery and consumables delivery side is a little more stable. So we'll see. This is, again, an industry which has been signaling for a long, long time that it can make money, but still like smoke signals or semaphores that you're looking at from a distance, <laughs> nothing that vivid that would pull you out of some other good companies or, or pull cash from your portfolio into these models. At least not mine, I should speak for myself. Shares of Coinbase are falling 5% this morning. Third quarter revenue for the cryptocurrency exchange was lower than expected. And I'm not surprised by this, are you? After what we've seen recently from Robinhood and others coming out and uh, to a company, all of them saying, yeah, crypto activity was lower this quarter. Well, you know, Coinbase told us in their prospectus before they went public that their model was dependent on rising volumes of trading. And they made a correlation that when uh, Bitcoin especially is rising, that tends to stoke interest in the cryptocurrency market. I would argue that probably Ethereum does as well when it's going up, but that's not a one-to-one -one correlation day in and day out. So the price of Bitcoin has been rising recently. will will be interesting to see if Bitcoin maintains its uh, recent momentum, what the next quarter looks like. But look, interest in cryptocurrency and digital assets, it is growing. It's cyclical in the microscope of these initial quarters of what I think is going to be a really, really, really long period of growth for this asset class. It's a tricky class to invest in. You have to be careful. I think that over the long term, maybe it's good for a business like Coinbase in that that market is so huge. But in the short term, it's going to be volatile. Their results will be volatile as people get into cryptocurrencies, sort of forget about them, get back in. Um, the, the other thing you have to look at this is the, the business model is based on activity. It's based on also its pricing power. And this is what bothers me about Coinbase in the future. We've seen every other type of monetary platform that acts as a brokerage become basically a commodity business over time. Um, so this is something Coinbase management is well aware of. They have other ways to monetize their platform, which include getting people interested in non-fungible tokens, NFTs. 
Um, also, the decentralized finance world, they have a lot of DeFi assets on their platform. So there are some counter strategies to this, but Coinbase is just, it's a complex business to try to judge and figure out if it's a, it's a persuasive idea to invest in. I'm on the sidelines with this one. You know, Chris, you and I talked about this, I think uh, maybe shortly after they went public. I still feel that while, while Coinbase will be able to see revenue growth and probably tremendous revenue growth over several years, it's a volatile proposition. We should point out though, in a good month, in a good quarter, they can be profitable. We'd do them a disservice not to point out they pulled in $1.2 billion of revenue and they had net income of $406 million uh, during the quarter. That's not bad business. It's just that it's so volatile. Yeah. I, I, you look at the trend line for crypto adoption, um, even just things like uh, comments from CEOs in other industries. Um, and and sort of the the general in some cases the general warming up to the idea of crypto the trend line works I think in the favor of businesses like Coinbase but like you I look at this and I think they're trying to do a lot of different things and it's not quite at you know with the, with the drop in the stock today it's basically where it was when it IPO'd earlier this year so it's it's not like this thing has taken off. Um, but it's, I'm still not there as an investor. Yes, I think that the optionality in the business model means that we shouldn't count it out. Over time, there could be a revenue stream that emerges that they're really able to monetize, whether that's in one of these uh, less mainstream but growing spaces like NFTs or decentralized finance. So we don't and shouldn't count Coinbase out. But again, this is. Yes, we, you know, we, we grant this is a, a revenue growth proposition. It's just how the company can continue to bring that to the bottom line in a more predictable fashion. That's the, the rub that I think investors grapple with, even though you've got a company, again, which can churn out $400 million out of net income in one business quarter on $1.2 billion in revenue. There are many businesses that if we looked at that, Side unseen, the rest of it, we would be very interested. That that's a tremendous net income margin, but it doesn't tell us a lot about the future evolution of the platform, about adoption, about what will turn into bottom line profits. Let's say a year or two or three years from today. Last thing before we move on, I want to key on on something you just said there because you you used a word that I think is so important, not just with Coinbase but with businesses in general, and that's predictability. I mean, on some level, that is what all investors, institutional and just everyday folks like you and me, are looking for. They are looking for some measure of predictability for how a business is going to do. And in the case of Coinbase or any business that has been public for a short amount of time, you don't get the benefit of the doubt because you haven't earned it yet. Yeah, and this is such a fascinating topic, Chris. I wish we had more time to, to plumb this. Some companies get a pass because their uncertainty, the uncertainty of their cash flows, means that there's potentially a huge reward down the road. Uh, the more stable the cash flows, the better the business, the easier to value. 
uh, the better place to park your money and watch it grow. There are tons of stable businesses and growing businesses that, that make wonderful investments over time. But we're drawn to companies which throw off uncertain cash flows, but show a super amount of potential in the future. So many technology companies, so many biotech companies I can think of. But then there are there are other companies which show sort of the same uncertainty. The market doesn't give them that that pass. As you're saying, the market scrutinizes the model and says, man, it just bothers me. I, I still can't wrap my head around projecting your business out more than a quarter or two, and, and hence I'm not as interested. And you can pay that penalty, even though your model may say there is a possibility that we make it big. It's very funny what investors alight on and where they give a pass and bid up a stock to crazy multiples, which has uncertain cash flows, and where they say, "Uh uh-uh, I I think I'll, for now, just stay on the sidelines. Two quick programming notes. Uh, First, it's a short week for us on Market Fullery. We're off on Thursday, but we will be back on Monday. So by all means, check out Industry Focus. Check out Motley Fool Answers. Check out Rule Breaker Investing with David Gardner. Uh, on Motley Fool Money this week, our guest is best-selling author Ben Mesrick. So check that out on Friday or sometime over the weekend. Um, all right. I've tried to stall to talk about Rivian Automotive, the electric vehicle maker, because Rivian's going public today. This is going to be one of the biggest IPOs of the year. They priced this stock at 78 which would give Rivian a valuation of about $66 billion. And I've got CNBC up live on uh, on one of my screens. The price hasn't come public yet. Um, it's indicating that it's going to open. Again, they priced it at seventy eight. Right now, the indication is it's going to open at one twenty. <laughs> so, can I interest you in a one hundred billion dollar market cap for a vehicle maker that, at the moment, doesn't really have any vehicles on the road? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, we should say. Uh, how bonkers is that? It, but it does show you the potential of the electrical vehicle market. And I do believe they have a few vehicles that are now in production over the last few weeks, though. It's it's very recent. So you may be right, Chris, that those vehicles aren't on the road yet. But here we have a company that was um, started, as its founder said, with a clean sheet design. Um, this is a company that had a a very tricky evolution. They started out wanting to do sports cars and finally figured out that the best place they could impact the market was just to focus on uh, the electric trucks, sort of Jeep uh, SUV type vehicles and EDVs, electric delivery vehicles. What has people excited is this big order from Amazon for 100,000 EDVs that will be delivered in the next few years. But I also like that they have um, a really nice platform for vehicles, which they expect to produce at the rate of about 55,000 per year, and then ramp that up. Their assembly plant is sort of a vertically integrated production facility out in the Midwest. I think it's very Tesla-like in the ingenuity of the design, and I think they'll be able to meet their production targets. These aren't going to be cheap vehicles. I mean, they will compete in price level with Teslas, although it's a slightly different market. And I think that there you know, is a large part of this market valuation that, that I'll buy. Now, that last, <laughs> I don't know, 
30, 40, 50 billion, Chris? I don't know. We're going to have to wait a few quarters and get some better numbers from Rivian. But just the investment from Amazon tells you that some very smart executives have gone and kicked the tires um, on this vehicle. Maybe not literally, but maybe they kicked tires on a prototype. Amazon understands delivery, production, logistics better than probably any company on the planet. I'm trying to think of a handful that can compete. So to me, it says that they have a pretty decent idea that Rivian is going to produce on schedule those 100,000 vehicles. And as investors, we can understand that the on-ramp for their um, uh, personal vehicles will follow a similar path unless they run into some unforeseen production problems. The other thing that I wanted to say about this, Chris, uh, reading through the S1, the company's designed their business to have some nice uh, alternate revenue streams. So they have a fleet revenue management component. Uh, they even have some insurance aspects. It's a direct-to-consumer model. There are software packages that uh, customers will be able to buy uh, beyond the basic software that runs the vehicle. So I think there are some nice margin enhancements. We won't know, as you point out, their pre-revenue for a few quarters, what that actually looks like. But there is something here behind uh, the hype. Now, again, a opinion from you. Look, is 100 or $120 billion uh, for a car company that's basically pre-revenue, does that even make sense? Or is this something that you see might have some staying power? Look, Tesla is a trillion dollar company, so maybe a hundred billion bucks is not so big uh, for, for Rivian? Uh, this would be more bonkers to me if we hadn't just gone through what we went through with Tesla over the past decade. You know, I'm, I'm hearing criticisms in the financial media of Rivian that sound very familiar. They were the criticisms of... Now, I'm not saying this is going to be the next Tesla, but you know, even the joke I made, like, oh, they don't really have, you know, they don't really have any cars on the road. They, you know, um, the that is a common criticism of Rivian. Like, well, they're, you know, they're not really pro projected to produce that many vehicles anytime soon. It's like, well, that was a knock on Tesla early on. And you mentioned Amazon. I, you know, it's important to point out Amazon has a twenty percent stake in this company. Ford Motor has a five percent stake in this company, and Amazon's order of, I believe, it's a hundred thousand vehicles. Granted, that's spread out over an eight-year period, but uh, you know, I th I think that is that goes in the bullish column. The fact that Amazon not only it would be one thing if Amazon just you know made the investment and had the stake. The fact that they've also committed to buying a hundred thousand vehicles uh, over the next decade, um, I think that's leading to some of the bullishness for for Rivian, and it's and it's warranted. But you know. They'll have their big event today. They'll they'll pop some champagne, um, and in 2022, we'll see what they can actually produce. I agree. Last point that I want to make uh, to your point that that criticism in the financial press sounds a lot like the criticism of Tesla. You know what else reminds me of Tesla is the way that this company has designed a lot of stuff in house. So I mentioned their production, but you know they're writing their own software. They've designed their own hardware. Their uh, vehicle electronic control units are done in-house. Battery packs. Uh, everything here has been designed to be highly configurable, highly adaptable, without relying on external parties. 
that is very familiar because it's exactly what Tesla did. And we saw during the worst of the supply chain crisis how Tesla was able to rewrite uh, the software that controls its chips and still meet some production and exceed some production targets. So this company has been designed very well from the ground up. Like I said, it was a clean sheet design without any assumptions of uh, that were tied to the ICE world. I, I think that you know we'll need to pay attention to this one very closely uh, in the coming years. Uh, eager to see. Now you don't have to wait a quarter, two, three, four to start getting a true picture and for some numbers to fall in, but you know, we'll be patient. Asa Sharma, always great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Always a pleasure, Chris. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday. Monday.